Hello, this is Debbie Reynolds of the Data Diva Talks Privacy Podcast, where we talk with industry leaders around the world related to data privacy issues and things that businesses need to know now. Today, I'm very happy and proud to have my friend and mentor, Mike Bryant from Knox Capital Holdings. He's a partner in the venture capital uh, company here in the U.S., We had a great conversation and actually Mike and I talked, had this podcast recorded. It was a bit after the U.S. presidential election where election day had passed, but it was during the week that we did not actually know who won the election. So some of the talk that we have is about sort of before or after the election. But uh, Mike had some really interesting things to say about what he thought would be happening after the the election, you know, as it relates to regulation, data privacy stuff. We talked a bit about antitrust and the big tech companies, as well as uh, some other stories about our time working together, as well as some of the other things that he sees in the future related to investing and in what investors look for when they're trying to put money into companies. So this is a great podcast and enjoy. Thank you, Mike, for being here. Thank you, Debbie. Always great to see you. I love to talk a little bit about your business journey. So you're very much a builder. You're like a mover, a shaker, a builder, and then you like to spin off things and like move to the next thing. And you just sort of climbed your own ladder, I feel, in your career. I love to hear just a little bit about your trajectory. Sure. Well, you know some of this history because we, we, we spent several years together on this journey. But uh, I, I grew up at a time in the mid-80s where it was typical to, to start in a big company. And you know, that's where the path that I took and, and looked at... Uh, Eastman Kodak Company, IBM, Xerox, kind of were the big three that I was focused on, even kind of through undergrad. And I had interned at Eastman Kodak. And uh, when I when I was applying at Kodak, they were really driving growth in their B two B division. And uh, I drew what I thought was a short straw at the time. And my first assignment uh, after 16 weeks of training was to to tackle the legal market in um, the upper Midwest, Minneapolis. So I didn't know really any anything about how law- lawyers worked and how law firms worked. And at the time, based on the, the type of role that I was in, I really needed to understand how law firms made money and, and really the entire workflow. So I immersed myself in it. I was fascinated by it and really developed a knack for that market at Kodak. And it served me well. Uh, I was promoted into a new division at Kodak that was more service-oriented, where uh, just like IBM and Xerox, Kodak got into the services game. And really, it was a, uh, a way to wrap outsourcing solutions around equipment and systems. And the legal market was my vertical focus as a dozen of us or so left the systems group to form and drive the growth of what was called Kodak Imaging Services. And I really got hooked on uh, not just the legal market, but services in general, and particularly technology-enabled services, 
which led me to kind of a jumping off point after uh, three, eight years in the systems group and three years in the services side. Uh, I, I moved over to Donnelly Enterprise Solutions, which was a, as you know, it was a spin out startup inside of our Donnelly, hyper-focused on the legal market and the uh, bulge bracket investment banks, two of the most type A clients you can find, you know, very <laughs> demanding. And we embraced it. And, uh, you know, my role in that business was to start an IT outsourcing group. And, uh, you know, it was fun to be part of a startup within a startup and uh, that business, as you recall, because I think that's about the time that we started to work together, was, uh, was a company that we took public. And then ultimately, we're, you know, we were bought off the public markets by another public company, Bound, which is when I moved to New York and really started to get more familiar with private equity and M&A in general. We started to, to, to buy businesses and integrate them into the bigger company. Um, uh, so... That was kind of the initial journey, but I'll pause there because I I recall when we worked together, you know, one of the things that I I loved about you so much is that we were growing so quickly and launching adjacent service lines. And I I always remember talking to you about new opportunities saying, Debbie, I have an opportunity for you. And, uh, you know, you were always willing to jump in to a new growth area, a new service line. And, and I think we were one of the first uh, services companies that put together a, you know, a litigation support offering for big law. And, and you managed that engagement, that operation for what was then, uh, if I recollect, Sun and Shine, Nath and Rosenthal before they became part of the, the juggernaut that is now Denton's. But you always raised your hand and, and jumped in. I appreciate that. And Silly and Austin. I did that. Yes, it's, yeah. <laughs> your path, though, uh, in your career, it really has been about digital transformation. So it's been about taking people from maybe the old way they're doing things and sort of changing or shifting the ways they're doing things. But I feel like data was very much the center of that. What do you think? Yeah, no doubt. I, I think what uh, you know, what I what I realized at a at a certain point is that if um, if you could enable service offerings with uh, with technology underpinnings, you created a a much tighter relationship with the client, and um, you know when you could get to the point where you knew more about their business than they knew about their business and the particular areas that you were touching uh, through some of the, the unique metrics that, that, that you could bring to bear, it really tightened the bond and, and, and you became indispensable. So, you know, I, I do think that, um, you know, it was, it was during that period that, you know, I realized that, you know, I needed to spend more time on technology companies, pure play software businesses. And we, we began to, to, to make that pivot at Bound. And then ultimately, um, you know, I, I really enjoyed working with the entrepreneurs that, that we would identify and, and purchase their companies and integrate into the, into the bigger business. So when we sold uh, Bound, 
business solutions to Williams Lee, that was kind of a natural jumping off point to get, to get more entrepreneurial and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, move, move in the direction of, of investing in technology companies and investing in service companies now at Knox and, you know, you don't have to look much further, Debbie, to, you know, some of the, some of the software uh, companies in the electronic discovery space are so impressive to see the growth and, um, you know, relativity, for instance, is rumored to be in discussions with Nuix at this time. And uh, when you put those two companies together to just contemplate the scale, if, if, that, if that combination were to come off, you'd have, a, you know, a $400 million business with 30% profit levels, you know, $120 million of EBITDA. That is phenomenal. And, you know, the th- to think that it wasn't that long ago that I was sitting in a tiny office subleased from Skadden with Andrew Sager as he was starting off the company and 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 now that business is worth in excess of likely three billion dollars a year. So, you know, to see just the 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 growth of um, you know the electronic discovery software players alone, it, it it's phenomenal. Yes, excellent, excellent. I agree. I agree. It is interesting to see how it's become. I mean, it it was a it was a business that didn't really have a name for a long time, right? Before eDiscovery sort of came along. So we were kind of doing it before it had an official name. It's, you know, it's a full-fledged, you know, business line and, you know, a lot of people know about it and talk about it. Um, I'd love to talk with you about your experience in doing and buying companies and selling companies and the considerations to come across your desk related to, you know, possibly due diligence related to like cybersecurity or data privacy? Like what concerns come up that people talk to you about? At one time when doing diligence on a company, a lot of the focus was on, I would say, financial. There was a financial work stream where you would, you know, validate the company's earnings, and you would you would do a quality of earnings test basically through a third party. You would also do um, you know there's a legal work stream where you're looking at all the you know kind of the the, the documents in the company. Uh, you're looking at insurance. You, there's an operational work stream always, and that's the part that I typically get involved with, uh, as well as a technology uh, third party work stream. And what's new, however, as part of that technology work stream, because oftentimes we're buying companies that has, um, they, they have, if they're not a software company, a pure play software company, they're certainly a services business that has technology enablement. So we're, we're really looking at any technology assets they have. What we are doing in addition to that more uh, now is a complete risk uh, assessment relative to their cyber posture, to their overall technology environment. We look at the infrastructure. Uh, we look. We look at the specific applications in a deep way. You know, as to their rigor in the development process, their product management process. Um, 
we look at the, you know, the talent behind the technology and kind of do a scorecard on that. But we've had to now because of, you know, we're all, if they don't have cyber insurance currently, we're going to be adding it uh, post close. So we need to button it up and really look at, you know, um, how, how they've managed, you know, their environment, how vulnerable they may or may not be. And uh, that takes a specialist to come in. We found that someone that might be good at looking at an application is not necessarily able to, 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 to put a position statement together on their, their cyber profile. And so we've had to, to go out and be, begin to identify partners to assist with that work. It's really an important part of the diligence process now. Yeah. The, and, and also, I think you're, you end up working with companies that want to have customers that are in other countries, right? So they have business in other countries. So that sort of touches on a lot of privacy issues that you have to consider that you would not have probably had to consider before with a business, for example, that was just in the U.S. Yeah, there is. There um you know, you you know, because I see a lot of your thought leadership on it, just how um, how much I think more seriously some countries uh, take take privacy and and the amount of uh, regulation that exists in in those countries. You know, I think it's it's certainly going to trend that way here too. Yeah. Uh, so you know, we we do have to. Uh, think about the global implications of these businesses. And, and again, in the past, most of that would be focused on tax right. implications. Exactly. Uh, you know, now it's a much more robust risk assessment um, around issues of privacy. Yeah, yeah. If you have to advise, so I work a lot with companies that are in emerging technology. So like uh, one project I'm working on is creating privacy standards for like virtual reality or augmented reality spaces. Um, and it's really interesting because a lot of it is about, you know, the movement of your head, how it like photo, uh, takes pictures of your eyes, the listening of ambient noises in the background, all those things create a lot of privacy issues, especially I think when people think about uh, virtual reality, I think about gaming, but actually, uh, virtual reality is really going into healthcare. So you could do, especially now with COVID, where, you know, literally someone could have you put on glasses, you're at home, and they're diagnosing you in some way, uh, you know, for health things. So it really is a huge area. Um, I'd be curious to know if you were to give advice to like a young company, like an emerging technology company uh, that's, that's working in different spaces and knowing that a lot of those companies are probably seeking, you know, investor, whatever, what type of advice would you give them, especially around, you know, privacy and technology and cybersecurity? They're in a very high profile uh, industry that is going to get the attention of um, not just the regulators, but the bad guys, right? right? Yeah. And so I think they're going to be held to a higher standard. Um, you know, we've seen how, um, you know, facial recognition, for instance, has flaws, 
right. in terms of racial bias mm-hmm. in, uh, in the law enforcement mm-hmm. uh, circles. And I think there's a lot of companies that, you know, we're kind of going down the path of leveraging, um, whether it be facial, audio, or object recognition, that are really having to think through not just the technology implications of, of their go-to-market, but the social implications. Right. So I think there's a, a whole other dimension of, I think, responsibility and risk management in, in these areas that uh, I, I think that's where you need to be very uh, sophisticated. You need to lawyer up. You need to make sure that you have the measures in place to uh, protect yourself, and uh, because you're you're going to be you're going to be um, you know poked and prodded by both the good guys and the bad guys. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. Uh, what things just just personally have you had concerns about related to privacy with technology in general? I know for me, I can tell you my story, but I want to hear your story first. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think I think the the part that is a little bit scary for uh, I think an investor, you know, someone that grew up operating businesses and 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 um, and now an investor is that if big firms like I mean firms that I really respect like DLA Piper, Foley Lardner, Cyfar. You know, and we know these, we know the, in, in those cases, we, we know the CIOs, you know, and, and some of the, the business people that sit on top of those firms are very, very good, the best, best in class. And if they're, you know, getting ransomed, that is the part that is, that does keep me up at night. You know, what, what can we do um, to, to protect uh, not only at a system level, but at an end user level, you know, to really kind of improve our uh, posture, uh, both technically, but also from a user standpoint, just creating more and more awareness. I think uh, now granted, these are high profile targets. There's some, some companies that I work with that are not as high profile, but uh, I think anybody that's collecting any uh, PII or, you know, credit card information, you have to be so uh, diligent and it's going to take some money and talent to, uh, you know, to shore things up. So I think it's that continued, the continued uh, attacks that are taking place uh, in, 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 and, you know, within entities that, uh, that I have a great deal of respect for, you know, that's concerning. It is concerning. I mean, uh, especially for a smaller business, you know, I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of breaches in the news with these gigantic companies and people think, oh, my God, if it could happen to a gigantic company, like what what do I have or what can I do uh, for myself? So that's always interesting. I think um, I have a story that I want to tell. I did some research on this. I'm going to spring it on you. So over the years, we uh, we get together periodically, you know, have breakfast or you're like the king of the breakfast meeting. Uh, but in uh, 2007, I lived in in D.C. and you you sent me a message like, "Hey, I'm gonna be in D.C. You know, we should hang out and we were gonna have drinks." So we ended up. I worked near the White House at the time, and so we ended up at a bar near the White House. And 
uh, you know, you came into the bar. We were like so happy to see each other. We were just talking and laughing. And then you may not even remember this. We looked around at the same time. We were like, everybody here looks miserable. It's like, what is going on? We couldn't figure out what was going on. So we started thinking about it, what, you know, what was happening in Washington that day. And this was around the time that the Valerie Plame issue was going on with Scooter mm-hmm. Libby. And Scooter Libby had been, um, he had been sentenced to prison for 30 months. And I think he was supposed to start his prison term the next day or something. So once we figured that out, we just could not stop laughing. It's not like we were, <laughs> we were laughing at the people. We were like, we're not from here because we're like the only people having any fun in this bar. <laughs> he, he actually got off. He got um, his sentence got, uh, you know, Bush commuted his sentence. So he didn't go to jail the next day. But those guys felt like he was going to jail. <laughs> like they thought, yeah, he's going to jail for sure. Oh, yeah. No, I remember that. And it's so interesting. You were right. I think you were right on K Street, right? I mean, you were like right in the Capitol area. And I was on Pennsylvania Avenue. Was it Pennsylvania? And it was, um, I mean, you, there literally, you know, where the uh, Politico set hangs out, you know, you know, what bars, what restaurants, and, you know, you can almost read the tea leaves as to who's in power, what's happening based on who's in the room, you know, who's having these sidebar conversations. And it's a, uh, it's an exciting place. And, um, you know, I'm sure that was an exciting time for you to be right in, right in the middle of it. Yeah, that was a, you know, that was a very inside the beltway moment. (laughs) (laughs) What's going on? What's going on? Um, I would love to talk about, you know, one thing that I'm really interested in and one thing I'm concerned about is, and you touched on it a little bit, it's kind of biometrics, you know, facial recognition, thumb recognition, um, you know, and also the bias in that where, you know, all of us, we, you know, if you have a phone, you're probably using your thumbprint or your face and, uh, you know, as even though um, there have been moratoriums on facial recognition used by some big companies of uh, uh, law enforcement, you know, still being used very much com- commercially. So it still is like a booming industry. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts about that? Because I feel like it's just so much more data about us is being recorded in a lot of different ways. And that's just an interesting one. Yeah, no, there, there's no doubt. I mean, I think that... Um, well, a, a couple things. I think that, you know, one of, one of the companies that we're invested in is Authenticity. And, you know, Mike McDonald, you know, the founder and CEO. And what I like about his um, AI architecture is that it's a multi-engine uh, based system. So, you know, he can, he can really kind of pick and choose the best transcription tools that are out there, the best engines that are out there for each of the use cases that he has. And, you know, there's, um, you know, I think more and more having a, a portfolio of engines to, to, to deal with identity issues uh, are, is the right approach architecturally. I think, I think more and more, um, it gets overlooked. I think audio 
is more reliable than facial recognition. And when you put the two together, it's even more reliable. And then there's certain, uh, there's certain AI engines that are just better trained for darker skinned right. uh, identification. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's a, um, there's a firm that cut its teeth in uh, Africa and is now uh, migrating up into the U.S. They're, they're beginning to, uh, to get some traction in the U.S., they're just superior and their technology is superior at, at identifying dark skinned people more accurately than some of the uh, technology that uh, that was that was developed in North America originally. So I think it's it's a combination of knowing, you know, which tools to use for which use case and and, uh, and not being t- uh, too tied into any one technology. Yeah, I don't think. You know, I know that a lot of people are very much in favor of moratoriums, which, you know, it's fine. I, I agree that if if you're using uh, a technology in a situation where it could be harmful to someone's life, it should be accurate, right? Just like evidence. Yeah. But, um, you know, I feel like I don't think the technology is going to go away, so it has to be improved. So I think having diverse people working on these problem is what is definitely needed. It's funny you talk about Africa. So I, I was a judge in a, this morning. Well, it was a ceremony this morning. So I was judge in a cyber women in Africa um, event and just blown away by the, the talent uh, in Africa with like cybersecurity and stuff. So that doesn't surprise me that you say that technology has come out of Africa. It's fantastic. Absolutely. And I think it's going to be a, um, there's, there's going to be a whole lot of investment uh, coming into the, into that continent yeah. from both uh, European investors, American investors, you name it. That's, that's super encouraging. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Are you seeing, um, I don't know if uh, a lot of companies are very concerned, especially ones that are doing cross-border or transatlantic data transfer to the EU about the privacy shield invalidation recently. Had you heard about this one? Uh, no. Uh- well, so basically uh, there's a this transatlantic agreement that the U.S. and the EU have tried to put together over the last 20 years. Uh, it was invalidated twice so far. Um, the most recent one was this year. Uh, and it's really concerning because it basically puts businesses in the middle of kind of a uh, a, a dispute, if you will, between the EU and the U.S. about how we handle data and do things like surveillance and stuff like that. So Wilbur Ross said that it is true that the U.S. has about $7 trillion of uh, commerce every year with the EU. So this, uh, the invalidation of this particular thing will hamper that in some ways, especially if people from the EU or companies don't want to move data to the U.S. So that's just, uh, that's a thing that's just going to play itself out. I think they're probably waiting until after the election, if it ever finishes, to see how that plays out. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm hoping we have a confirmed uh, winner by Thanksgiving. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Thanksgiving is canceled, so... (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, it seems that, you know, a lot of these private, you know, so uh, also in the election, 
uh, California just passed a new privacy regulation that creates like an agency within California to look at data privacy. So it's it's not it's sort of like kind of like the GDPR in the uh, EU, but not as uh, as robust. But it is the most robust thing that we have here in the U.S. Um, so we'll see definitely how that happens. I would love to your thoughts though, if you have been following this at all, the antitrust suits that are happening with like Microsoft and stuff like that. Or do you have any thoughts about that? I think regardless uh, who wins the White House, there I think the you know the large technology players are gonna be scrutinized in in twenty twenty one. And you know, I think I think they're you know, there, there should be some oversight as to uh, what's happening. And more than anything, to, to make sure that um, the business practices are fair and reasonable and they're creating an environment where there can be competition, there can be healthy competition. There may need to be some intervention in some cases, uh, but I, I think it, it needs to be less political and just more about uh, true antitrust issues and, and, and really, I think, taking advantage. You know, I think there's some cases where you do get too big and too powerful where you can take advantage of the end consumer. I think that, you know, that, uh, that is all going to need, need to be scrutinized, but in a, in a, in a non-political way. And there's going to be there's going to be a lot of attention uh, there, and I think the the part that I think will will need to you know the the government will need to thread the needle on is is not jeopardizing all of the innovation that takes place, you know, and you know because we that's a that's a strategic advantage that we have in this country. So I think that you know it's really finding that balance and. Um, you know, I, I think it's easy to begrudge a large multi-billion multinational uh, because when you see the valuations, when you see the CEOs and, and, and the wealth that they're, they're, you know, creating for themselves and for their shareholders, they become a target, you know, and uh, they, they have to demonstrate that they're being responsible uh, with the power that they've accumulated, with the wealth that they've accumulated, or they will be, they'll be busted up. And and it, that's just inevitable. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if, I feel like these tech companies are a different animal. So I don't, you know, it's not like big oil where you say there are, you know, 100 oil fields, you're going to split it up amongst, you know, different people. You know, they're really creating these innovations. So are you really saying you want them to give their innovation to someone else? You know, I don't know if, you know, having five Facebooks would be better than having one. I don't know. <laughs> right, right. I don't know. No, they're, they, have, they have so many resources now, whether it's Facebook or Amazon or Apple, you know, Alphabet, Google. They, they, they will make very strong defenses on why these businesses need to stay connected and why they're interrelated. It'll be a uh, coup for... The, the e-discovery professionals, if there, if there is, you know, more merger activity at a high level, I think the, I think the big deals are going to continue to be scrutinized. There's going to be more second requests. 
in 2021. Oh, definitely. And a lot of, I think a lot of lawsuits flying around uh, as well in 2021. Oh, I think so too, especially, so I don't know, I don't, I don't know, you know, these cases take so many years to go through, so it'll be a while before we get any real decision. But one thing that I think will happen, like you said, I think there'll be more scrutiny, especially as it re, as it relates to acquisitions of other companies. Absolutely. That's going to be a super hot area, I think, I think. So I would love to find out if we gave you the magic wand and privacy could be just as you like it to be around the world. What is What would be your wish about data privacy? I think we need to solve for... This, this dilemma around passwords, number one, I think there's got to be a better way to, to manage passwords. Uh, I think there, there needs to be a, 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 a much, more, much more awareness around ransomware and uh, better tools for, for managing uh, those, those incidents. And uh, probably a little bit more collaboration and sharing across um, both at a governmental level and at a, you know, kind of a compliance regulatory level across the world, because these incidents, you know, they kind of roll across, you know, the geography, you see it coming. And then, you know, I think enforcement too, you know, when, when we can work together and identify the cyber criminals, they, they need, they need to be, I think there needs to be coordination around that and there needs to be, uh, you know, strong enforcement. I agree. I think, you know, at a high level, a lot, everyone around the world is experiencing the same thing. So I feel like if we can work, find some way, some common ground to work on this, that we'll do better as opposed to everyone trying to do their own thing across that. And then another thing, like you said about passwords, I saw a, a um, I worked on a thing for MIT and there was a statistic there. You were with MIT, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. I had a cup of coffee there. It was. was (laughs) Well, they had a statistic, uh, this program that I did with them where it said that the average person has 90 usernames or passwords. And that is not sustainable. That is not going to work. It's like, all you're doing is getting more stuff and more passwords. It's like, it's just not going to work. So I think, I think the switch has to go where that you as an individual will be like a bank for your own, all your stuff. And then you decide who you're going to loan your data to back and forth. Like to me, that's the, really the way that it should probably go. That's the way I think it's going to go. Yeah, that's great. I think that especially with just the growth in FinTech, everyone is so accustomed to, you know, really doing transactions. I had, I had a friend laugh at me the other day because I wrote a check. <laughs> and it was like, who uses checks anymore? And I'm like, I know you're right. You know, between all the payment processing tools out there right. and the tools, it, it's uh, digital, you know, digital is the way to go. And, uh, you know, I think more and more there's going to be, I think, adoption of crypto. Oh, totally. Oh, I could totally talk about crypto. Yes. <laughs> I know. So I have friends that were really, they're anti-crypto because of like Bitcoin and like the ransomware, but crypto is going to eat everyone's lunch. That's what I think is going to happen because especially, I think because of COVID too, it's going to accelerate where people want more contactless payments. But the idea that you can have a currency that is worldwide and you can get people on it 
that are probably unbanked and underbanked, which means they can get more data on those people. I mean, that's going to be crazy. Totally agree. So how can people contact you or reach you or figure out how, what you're up to? Pretty active on LinkedIn. I'm, you know, up there. Uh, Knox Capital. The uh, domain is actually knox-cap.com. Uh, we try to be relatively timely on, you know, transactions that we're involved with there. Although we've closed two deals in two weeks uh, that we haven't <laughs> uh, we haven't posted yet. We'll we'll catch up and talk more about those in the fourth quarter. Um, working on a deal as well that may not close until the first quarter that's really interesting in the legal uh, tech and services space that um, it'll be one of those that you'll you'll probably text me when that get announced, uh, gets announced so yeah that yeah look forward to, to staying in touch Debbie it's always great to see you fantastic I'm so happy that you were able to join the show today thank you all right thank you